The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Well, the mostly peaceful, peaceful transition of power is over, and that's, quote, unique to America, because we all know that in Denmark and the Netherlands, the outgoing guy gets carried out by the handles and dangled from a lamppost as a cautionary tale. I'm not sure that that isn't actually happening this time in the United States. Another Florida bank has closed down Donald J. Trump's accounts, deposit accounts. This is a bank called uh, Banks United, odd name for a bank, but they all are these days. But he was said to have between five and 25 million in two money market accounts there. If you're listening in Florida and you bank with Banks United or Professional Bank, another odd name, but they've also dumped Trump, you might want to think about taking your business elsewhere. Whether Donald Trump can take his business elsewhere remains to be seen. The supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, has posted a picture of a Trump-like figure on the golf course under the shadow of a drone. The graphic is captioned, Revenge is certain. Take a number and get in line, pal. Meanwhile, the new regime in Washington says it has no plans to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal, quote-unquote, quickly. The Supreme Ayatollah wants Trump dead. The Democrat media big social alliance want Trump in jail. And as I said on Russia Week or two back, Trump himself is said to be eyeing his properties abroad as permanent residents. He would be advised to find somewhere with no extradition treaty with the United States or come to that with Iran, as Tehran has charged him with the murder of General Soleimani and uh, filed an international arrest warrant. Between uh, those two criteria, it's actually quite a short list of uh, available countries. Meanwhile, the Democrats have finally figured out what they're impeaching Trump for. The new Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer. Make no mistake, there will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John, Donald John Trump incited the erection. Inciting the erection. I don't know whether it's a misdemeanor, but it's certainly a high crime. Uh, one thinks of Jeffrey Tubin and his Zoom call penis. Tubin got an erection during a New Yorker conference call about post-election coup scenarios. For four years, Trump has been inciting the erections of his obsessed enemies. I think this is usually the point at which I do the but will the evidence stand up in court gags, but I can't be bothered. Of the nominal head of the new United States government, I have not much to say and nor does he. He was doing so well on Wednesday that I thought his dementia had cleared up. But it seems he wears an earpiece and uh, gets fed his lines by whoever's at the other end. Kamala, Zuckerberg, Chairman Xi, who knows. Uh, in this case, he and Dr. Jill are approaching the building and two Marines snap to attention and whoever's in his earpiece says, salute the Marines. But instead of saluting the Marines, Joe Biden says, salute the Marines to the Marines. Listen carefully. 
Marines. Salute the Marines. So he's reading out the stage directions on his first day. If this ever comes up on the CBS Evening News, you'll be told that it's an ancient tradition for battle-scarred combat veterans such as Biden to say salute the Marines to the Marines, and that Trump was totally disrespectful in declining to do it these last four years. Whatever a mostly peaceful, peaceful transition of power is meant to be, this one is most bizarre. The capital city was deserted and there were only 1,000 attendees at the alleged inauguration. That's basically the 435 congressmen, 100 senators, the Supreme Court judges, various former presidents and cabinet secretaries, each of whom was permitted to bring one guest. So 2,000 in total, protected by over 26,000 National Guardsmen, or 13 to 14 Guardsmen per person. The Department of Justice and FBI assured us that because of the clear and present danger by white supremacist, domestic terrorist, insurrectionists, all 50 state capitals also had to go into lockdown. You know what's going on here. Obama drew the biggest inaugural crowds of all time, and uh, Trump's numbers weren't shabby either. But because there's no public enthusiasm for this new guy, the alleged 50-state insurrection was used as cover for a so-called citizen representative to take office with no citizens present. When the 1,000 bigwigs and their non-binary spouses had cleared off, the poor old National Guard were told that they would be sleeping on the floor in parking garages. My own governor, Chris Sununu, has ordered the New Hampshire National Guard to come home over this, quote, disrespect to the troops, and good for him, and good for their ex-commander-in-chief, who has told the guardsmen they're welcome to stay for free at his Trump Hotel in D.C. I said last spring that America was degenerating from a great power into a great power theme park, where the outward forms of power remain, but nothing else. This absurd week in which the swampiest of swamp creatures installed a regime fronted by identity politics grievance mongers and unconvincing trannies is a further degeneration, a parody of a great power theme park. We children of empire know a bit about all this, about what happens when the outward forms survive but are utterly hollowed out within. The day after the inauguration in Washington, Her Majesty's Canadian Viceroy resigned in disgrace. This has never happened before in the entirety of Canadian history. And over the findings of a Privy Council report on Julie Payette's toxic workplace environment at Rideau Hall, the president of the Privy Council, Dominique Leblanc. The conclusions of the report uh, were such that the workplace was clearly a source of concern. And in fact, the clerk of the Privy Council and Privy Council officials will, in the coming weeks, be reaching out directly to staff at Rideau Hall and working with them. Picked by the Prime Minister, but appointed by the Queen, tonight Buckingham Palace said the Queen is aware of today's developments. I'll make three points. First, the Privy Council investigation was set up on July 23rd last year. So that's less than six months from soup to nuts and the instant resignation of the Governor-General 
the following day. By contrast, south of the border, the Durham inquiry has been going on for two years. But, ooh, don't worry, the Durham report is coming any day now, and then you'll see Comey, McCabe, Brennan, they'll all be in big trouble. Why does the American right fall for such obvious flim-flam every time? Uh, By the way, did you know Canada has a Durham report on the causes of the rebellions of 1837-1838? The first Earl of Durham arrived in Quebec City on May the 29th, 1838, and laid his report before the Imperial Parliament at Westminster on February the 11th, 1839. Seven and a half months, or a third of the time this Durham-come-lately guy in Connecticut has taken. And Lord Durham's findings resound down the centuries in the roadmap uh, for colonial self-government reflected to this day in the uh, governing arrangements of over 60 nations and territories. If you're taking two years to investigate something as urgent as subversion of the last election, it's no wonder you get entirely suckered and surprised by the subversion of the next election. Will the Durham report, the Durham report, come out before the 2024 election? Second, I regret this vice-regal humiliation Uh, Because I think there's something to be said for separating partisan politics from the state, which is what constitutional monarchy does. The American presidency, which combines head of government and head of state, worked for over a century because, A, it was not an era of big government. Uh, When McKinley was assassinated 120 years ago, people were upset uh, for him personally because it's no way to go, but his administration did not impinge on their lives in every aspect. And B, as the founders intended it, the man did not seek the office, the office sought the man. So Americans did not have two-year campaigns about personality that end uh, in an age of mass media with the winner being shoved in your face 24-7 for four years. So in these changed circumstances, every aspect of the state becomes hyper-politicized, including now even the armed forces, the flag, the national anthem. A division between crown and government uh, helps mitigate against that. The bifurcation in itself generally diminishes the status of politicians, which is a good thing. And so I hope the disgrace of the Governor-General does not come to reflect on the system as a whole. Third, and uh, on a personal note, I spent a day at Rideau Hall a year or so back and can only report that Julie Payette was utterly charming to me. Uh, At supper, I sat next to Asanta Di Lorenzo, who has also resigned in disgrace. Madame Di Lorenzo is a Montrealer, also delightful company, who served as, quote, executive assistant to Her Excellency. Is that a new thing, I said? I mean, he didn't have an executive assistant, did he? And I indicated the portrait behind us of the Marquis of Lorne. In the arrogance of the present... The arrogance of the present. We think ancient offices, such as privy councils and aide-de-camp, 
are ridiculous, but there's a reason they endure over the centuries, and modish innovations such as executive assistant, uh, can often merely destabilise things. Uh, Notwithstanding the failures of her term, I found uh, Madame Payette engaged and sociable uh, as a uh, vice-regal host. Um, An elderly guest's trousers fell down. He'd forgotten his belt Uh, as he was being photographed with her. And uh, when you're being photographed uh, with the Viceroy, you don't generally want your pants to uh, hit your ankles. Um, But Madame Payette smoothly reached behind, leaning down just ever so slightly, and yanked them back up in, uh, in, in, in one very polished movement. I advised her, I don't often tender unsought advice, but I do once in a while. I did to Mrs. Thatcher when I recommended to her that she did not, she should not take a peerage. Um, But after looking at the ghastly informal portraits in ever weirder garb of recent governors general, uh, I said to Madame Payet that she should just junk that hideous trend and be photographed in regular formal court dress or military uniform. She said that wasn't her style, and I suggested as politely as I could that it's not about her style. Julie Payette is an accomplished person. I mean, she's an astronaut, and there's very few people anywhere on the planet who can say that. An astronaut. But perhaps the qualities that send a woman into space also make her psychologically unsuited to vice-regal office. It demands a certain self-effacement, which perhaps comes easier to unambitious aristocrats and retired generals, or even one-offs, such as John Buchan, a very familiar name to listeners to Tales for Our Time. We've done The 39 Steps and uh, Green Mantle and The Powerhouse. Um, But... uh, As Viceroy, he was also a very secure chap, at ease in his own skin. As I said goodnight in uh, the entrance hall of uh, Rideau Hall, uh, well after midnight, I bowed from the neck, as one does in the Canadian system for royal authority. And uh, Her Excellency stepped forward and hugged me which took me aback a little, but hug-wise, I reciprocated. I'm, I'm, I used to be quite a hugger before the COVID put a stop to all that. And uh, we were so locked for quite a while. Uh, I can't claim to know her. But I reflected as I drove back to New Hampshire in the early hours of the morning that she was sad and rather lonely and trapped and very unhappy in her job. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. This isn't really a request spot, but I was tickled by this missive from Steve, a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from New York City. Uh, Steve writes, Not sure which was more grim on Inauguration Day. One stepping and almost slipping on a deceased flattened rat in the middle of the street around noontime. A sign of the times in de Blasio's Manhattan. Two 
Playing the newest Mark Stein show and hearing again, now with the benefit of hindsight, Mark's prescient comments made throughout 2020 on the prospects for President Trump. Or three, listening last night to Winston Smith try to find shards of truth about the past in a dingy prole pub. The encounter with the dead rat made me hunt down this bit from Robert Browning. It may have been a water rat I speared, but ugh, it sounded like a baby's shriek. Although it's longish, I think Browning's child Roland to the Dark Tower came might be a candidate for Mark's poem for January 20th, 2021, Anno Domini. Then, pausing to throw backward a last view, or the safe road, twas gone, grey plain all round, nothing but plain to the horizon's bound. I might go on, naught else remain to do. Thank you, Steve. As you say, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came is a bit long for our weekly poem, but it is a corker. And one passage seems apt for this weekend. Uh, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came is a kind of throwaway line of Shakespeare's from King Lear. And uh, Browning was struck by it and expanded it. The child in Child Roland isn't a child in the sense we use the word today, a uh, transitioning middle schooler or a Guatemalan moppet pulled out of the caravan and stuck in a cage. A child as in Child Roland means the son of a nobleman who has not yet won his spurs. So we are here in the realm of knightly quest. That's knightly with a K, not knightly quest as in Hunter trying to score some crack in Kiev. Uh, The knightly quest to reach the Dark Tower is capable of many interpretations, and many have been made of Browning's poem over the years. But the couplet about the rat that Steve quoted suggests one appropriate for our times, a knightly figure sallying forth to drain the swamp and the river child Roland crosses where he is never sure whether or not he is walking on dead bodies is an easy stand-in for the Potomac. And the hell that awaits him on the other side is a plausible district of Columbia where the Uniparty sets citizens against each other as... In Browning's analogy, the Turk sets his galley slaves against each other, Christians versus Jews. It's all rather right, but that's Washington, D.C., isn't it? A truly repulsive town. Other national capitals are great cities, uh, Paris, Rome, London, that just happen to have a little bit of government going on in them. Uh, but also are centres of finance and the arts and religion and commerce and all kinds of things. All Washington has is the state and its rent-seekers. When you cross the river of the dead and enter the swamp, can you drain it or will it drain you? Written on January the 2nd, 1852, and first published in the anthology Men and Women in 1855 by Robert Browning. An excerpt from Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. A sudden little river crossed my path, as unexpected as a serpent comes. No sluggish tide congenial to the glooms, this as it frothed by might have been a bath, for the fiend's glowing hoof, to see the wrath of its black eddy bespate with flakes and spumes. 
So petty, yet so spiteful, all along low scrubby alders kneeled down over it. Drenched willows flung them headlong in a fit of mute despair, a suicidal throng. The river, which had done them all the wrong, whate'er that was, rolled by, deterred no whit. Which, while I forded, good saints, how I feared to set my foot upon a dead man's cheek. Each step, or feel the spear I thrust to seek, for hollows tangled in his hair or beard. It may have been a water rat I speared, but, ugh, it sounded like a baby's shriek. Glad was I when I reached the other bank. Now for a better country, vain presage. Who were the strugglers? What war did they wage? Whose savage trample thus could pad the dank soil to a plash? Toads in a poison tank, or wildcats in a red-hot iron cage? The fight must so have seemed in that fell cirque. What penned them there with all the plain to choose? No footprint leading to that horrid muse, none out of it. Mad brewage set to work, their brains, no doubt, like galley slaves, the Turk, pits for his pastime, Christians against Jews. And more than that, a furlong on, why there? What bad use was that engine for, that wheel, or brake, not wheel, that harrow fit to reel, men's bodies out like silk, with all the air of Tophet's tool, on earth left unaware or brought to sharpen its rusty teeth of steel. Then came a bit of stubbed ground, once a wood, next a marsh, it would seem, and now mere earth, desperate and done with. So a fool finds mirth, makes a thing and then mars it, till his mood changes and off he goes, within a rood, bog, clay and rubble, sand and stark black dearth. Now blotches rankling, coloured gay and grim. Now patches where some leanness of the soils broke into moss or substances like thus. Then came some palsied oak, a cleft in him like a distorted mouth that splits its rim, gaping at death and dies while it recoils. And just as far as ever from the end, Nought in the distance but the evening, nought to point my footstep further. At the thought a great black bird, Apollyon's bosom friend, sailed past, nor beat his wide-winged dragon pen that brushed my cap, perchance the guide I sought. For looking up, aware I somehow grew, spite of the dusk, the plain had given place all round to mountains, with such name to grace mere ugly heights and heaps now stolen in view. How thus they had surprised me, solve it you! How to get from them was no clearer case. Yet half I seemed to recognise some trick of mischief happened to me, God knows when, in a bad perhaps. Here ended then progress this way, when in the very nick of giving up one time more came a click, as when a trap shuts, you're inside the den. A poem in part 
from me to you from Robert Browning's great work, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came. You can find it in his anthology, Men and Women, published in 1855. Jeeves was fond of quoting the line to his master, Bertie Worcester, when Bertie announced his intention of motoring down to Totley Towers for the weekend. And Bertie never grasped the reference. Came a click as when a trap shuts. You're inside the den. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Denise Johnson, a brand new member of the Mark Stein Club from Florida. Happy to have you along, Denise, and hope you'll prowl around the archive and find some uh, nice stuff you missed over the years. Denise says she really enjoyed our Dave Brubeck Take 5 show from a couple of months back. Glad to... uh, Glad to hear that. But uh, turning to more marrow-chilling matters, Denise writes, Has our government always been this bad, or are we only aware now due to people like Assange and Donald Trump? Trump achieved most of what he set out to do, but in true Trump fashion, he managed to find a way to fumble the touchdown by slipping on his own mess. Trump's greatest achievement was revealing the corruption of our politicians and the danger in trying to stop it. Donald J. Trump, president and whistleblower. That's a very good point, Denise. You remember that so-called whistleblower all way back uh, in the first impeachment of Donald J. Trump uh, one year ago, that first phony whistleblower. That would have actually been the defence, the best defence, that in fact the real whistleblower was uh, Donald J. Trump promising to uh, drain the swamp. It's a spectacularly huge question you put, Denise, and worthy of a, a special, uh, really. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll touch a few points. On the Julian Assange thing, you know, as I said to, uh, to Tucker on TV a couple of years back when the thing with Assange first started, there are over four million people with top security clearances in the United States. That's uh, a population the size of New Zealand or Norway with top security clearances. So obviously, by definition, those top secrets cannot be top secret. In other words, there's a lot of stuff that ought to be generally known that they're keeping from us by conscious choice. And it's very hard to get a grip on those agencies. Uh, and uh, as as Donald J. Trump found out, uh, I'll, we'll be saying more about Assange as this awful, disgraceful attempt to extradite him with which no English or Canadian or Australian judge should have anything uh, to do. We'll have more to say about Assange in the uh, the weeks uh, ahead. But uh, that core question, has our government always been this bad? Well, no. No. But as Ben Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it. To go back to what I was saying about the Governor General of Canada a few moments back, a monarchy is whatever it is. The royal house reigns by divine right. You get good kings and bad and life chunters on. But a republic presumes virtue. If you don't have a virtuous people, you can't have a republic. Not a true republic, I mean. I'm not talking about 
a monarchical republic such as France or the one-man psycho states like uh, North Korea. Um, what Ben Franklin meant is that it's uh, easy to proclaim a republic, it's harder to keep it. Once you have big government no one can comprehend, once you have innumerable alphabet soup agencies that cruise on regardless of who gets elected, once you have welfare programs open to all, including illegal immigrants from all 7 billion uh, people around the earth who manage to get to the Rio Grande and uh, cross it in a flat-bottom boat. It's harder and harder to maintain virtue and thus harder and harder to maintain a republic. Now, some of those problems, like the permanent bureaucracy, go back nine decades. And I've been pointing them out uh, not quite as long, but it feels like that some days, most days, this week. A decade ago in my book, After America, I asked, where do you go to vote out the EPA? Uh, and I think I mentioned a couple of other agencies, too. I could have asked, where do you go to vote out the NSA or the FBI? When you look at most of Trump's problems these last four years, they boil down to the permanent state's refusal to accept the result of the election. A year ago, there was a parade of complete wankers through the halls of Congress. That State Department fellow with his bow tie tied too tight. That, uh, that English lady from Yorkshire, I think, that everyone liked. Um, these, these, the position of these complete wankers was that it doesn't matter who gets elected president. There is a permanent enduring policy towards Ukraine that exists independent of whatever the voters want. And the entire U.S. media took this position seriously, even though it's the precise inversion of self-government. Uh, their position is that it's not the duty of the civil service to carry out the policy of the president. It's the duty of the president, the citizen representative, the chief magistrate, to get on board with the permanent bureaucracy. He's just a fig leaf of self-government on the permanent state. And so so-called liberals who back in their college days chanted, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today, are now openly cheering the intelligence bureaucracy's subversion of the 2016 Trump campaign and the general staff's outright defiance of the civilian commander-in-chief's order to, say, withdraw troops from Syria. It's really a surprise the Democrats bothered to steal the election because they've spent the last four years arguing that elections don't matter. Elections should have no consequences. I'd add a couple of other things, uh, too, just quickly here. China's rise to world dominance and the republic's decline are related, and not just in the obvious way, such as Beijing buying up everyone who matters. The transfer uh, over these last three decades of every meaningful economic activity to China has led to declining socioeconomic mobility in America. Increasingly, the world you're born into is the world you're stuck in. So we have not just a permanent bureaucracy, but increasingly a permanent uh, ruling class who all marry each other and indeed contract those marriages like minor ducal families in medieval Europe. To bust out of this hell, we're going to need some seriously new ideas uh, with major appeal. 
And so far, having seen off Trump, the Republican establishment sounds like it's happy to go back to small ball conservatism. Ooh, low taxes. Even as the Democrats are openly pushing a supposed 9-11-sized war on alleged domestic terror that will make the shriveled wedding tackle of small ball conservatives even smaller. Sorry to go all Chuck Schumer on you there. What better way to escape from a world of censorship, surveillance, and big government than by delving into a novel about, well, censorship, surveillance, and big government? Mark Stein's latest tale is as timely as ever. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark reads George Orwell's dystopic 1984. Tales for Our Time are available exclusively to members of the Mark Stein Club. Listen to the latest tale and all the previous ones by going to www.steinonline.com. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. A composer murdered, an Iron Man crushed, and a woman sawn in two. It's January 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. France's failure to collect the full German reparations due under the Treaty of Versailles led to the collapse of its government. Now, the French Chamber of Deputies has approved a new government led by Aristide Briand as Prime Minister. Turkey's Grand National Assembly has ratified a new constitution for the country. The document says not a word about the Sultan or any role he might play in the new constitutional order. Instead, executive power is delegated by the Assembly to its chairman, and a council of ministers. It's the winter in the summer. Don't we have fun? Times are bum and getting bummer. Times are bum and getting bummer. Ain't that the truth, at least for the Russian people? The Soviet government has announced in its newspaper Pravda an immediate one-third reduction in the daily ration of bread for residents of its cities. This in the middle of winter during a long famine caused by last year's drought and a poor grain harvest, and by this year's heavy snows and fuel shortages, which have held up food trains from Siberia and the northern Caucasus, where, by direction of the central government, so-called surpluses of food are stored. Still, Bolshevism marches on. The Soviet Union has created two new autonomous Soviet socialist republics. The first in Dagestan on the Caspian Sea with the capital at Maghashkala. The second, the Gorskaya or Mountain Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic in the northern Caucasus Mountains, providing for limited self-government within the Russian Republic, from the Caucasus to Tuscany 
and the Socialist Party's convention in Livorno. After the party's vote against joining the Moscow-run Internazionale, the Italian socialists have split in two. We who are in the minority are not going to accept this vote, announced Amadeo Bordiga of the pro-Russian faction. Therefore, we announce that the communists will leave this hall and congregate in St. Mark's Theatre, where a new communist party will be formed. Hurrah for the communists! Persian market has spoken. After barely three months in office, Fatullah Khan Akbar resigned as Prime Minister. He has now withdrawn his resignation after pressure from Persian business leaders. In London, Prime Minister Lloyd George has been making changes to his cabinet. Britain's Minister of War, Winston Churchill, is now Secretary of State for the Colonies. In his place at the War Office is Salaming Worthington Evans. Lord Lee is the new First Lord of the Admiralty and Sir Arthur Griffith Boscawen, Minister of Agriculture. On John Bull's other island, Sinn Féin had laid an ambush for a detachment of the Black and Tans on a bridge at Drumconra on the north side of Dublin, uh, but the government got wind of it and rushed troops and police to the scene, attacking the Irish Republican revolutionaries from the rear. Six Sinn Féiners were captured, one is said to have been fatally wounded. In the United States, the New York papers are reporting that the town of Killen, Alabama, has been completely destroyed by fire. No one knows how it started, but the blaze is said to have consumed Killen's post office, all three of its lodge halls and all five of the town's stores. It has been a very lucrative January for Illinois train robbers, Following last week's haul of $197,000 in currency at Mount Vernon, thieves took $462,000 in bonds and cash from a mail train at Chicago's busiest terminal, Union Station. In Denver, Colorado, revenue agents have arrested the leader of a drug ring that operates in 22 of America's 48 states and is said to have annual revenues of over $1 million. President McKinley's former Assistant Treasury Secretary, Frank Vanderlip, has proposed the creation of a Council of Foreign Relations to be composed of 30 prominent businessmen and politicians who would, quote, direct American intercourse with foreign nations. Mr. Vanderlip foresees the Council eventually taking over the treaty-making functions presently exercised by the United States Senate. A proposal to increase the number of congressmen from 435 to 483 has been overwhelmingly rejected by the House of Representatives. But a joint resolution has passed Congress calling on the Secretary of War to cease recruiting for the army 
until the number of troops has been reduced from 224,000 to 175,000. We reported on the death a few days ago of Rafael Antonio Gutierrez, former head of state of the short-lived United States of Central America. He would be interested to learn that a treaty has been signed to merge the nations of El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras and Costa Rica into a single republic to be known as the United Provinces of Central America. I've got ten little fingers and ten little toes down in Tennessee waiting there for me. What about if the ten little fingers and the upper torso were over here on the left and the ten little toes and the lower torso were over on the right? If you've ever wanted to see a woman sawn in half, you will surely enjoy the magician P.T. Selbit, who has, for the first time ever, performed that amazing feat on a public stage, that of the Empire Finsbury Park in London, with audience members holding the ends of ropes tied to his assistant to prevent her fleeing in terror. Theatre-goers were agog as Mr Selbit sliced her in two. The lady in question, Miss Betty Barker, is reported to have been successfully put back together and it is said that one cannot see the join. A new full-length comedy dramatic picture play written, produced and directed by Charlie Chaplin and, of course, starring him, has thrilled audiences at its New York premiere. The Kid also features in the title role six-year-old Jackie Coogan, who was a particular hit with picture-goers at Carnegie Hall. During a mock battle in the Bay of Biscay, the Royal Navy submarine HMS K-5 has sunk with the loss of all 56 officers and men. No one knows the cause of the disaster. A fellow Royal Navy man was rather luckier in Stockholm Harbour. A sailor fell overboard from a British vessel that was in port. It was deep water and he appeared to be struggling. Fortunately, he was spotted by a kindly gentleman who went into the harbour, saved the drowning seaman and brought him to shore. The grateful sailor was astonished to learn that his rescuer was Crown Prince Gustav, son of the King of Sweden. This is not the first British subject His Royal Highness has held in his arms. His late wife, Crown Princess Margaret, was the daughter of the Duke of Connaught, former Governor-General of Canada. Mykola Leontovich, the Ukrainian composer, is dead at the age of 43. He was staying at the home of his parents for the Orthodox Feast of the Nativity, that's Christmas, when another young man asked to stay the night and did so in Mykola's room. Unfortunately, he was an undercover agent of the Cheka, the Bolshevik secret police, and he shot the composer dead at dawn. This is the music that seems most likely to outlive its creator, Mykola Leontovich's Ukrainian bell carol, Shedrick.
The anatomist Heinrich Wilhelm Gottfried von Waldeyer Hartz is dead at 84. Among many achievements, he coined the terms neuron and chromosome. The perennial contender for the world bantamweight title, Austin Rice, was known as the Iron Man, if only that were so. He was run over in Connecticut by his own horse-drawn wagon and is dead at the age of 48. He leaves a son, presently in jail, charged with the murder of Inspector McHenry. Arthur Sifton is dead at the age of 62. He was the second Premier of the province of Alberta and latterly Secretary of State for Canada, responsible for relations with the Imperial Government in London. He was one of two Canadian signatories to the Treaty of Versailles. And that's the way of the world. January 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. That will do it for today's show. Please join me Monday. I'll be in for Rush on America's number one radio show as Nancy Pelosi delivers the articles of re-impeachment to the Senate. And America prepares for the first ever re-impeachment trial. And indeed, the first impeachment trial of an ex-president to remove him from an office he no longer holds. Checks and balances... Checks and balances. Uh, oh, check-wise, do check in every evening right here at Stein Online for our far too timely tale for our time. George Orwell's 1984. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights reserved.